by definition for me a chef because everybody calls themselves a chef but for me a chef the actual translation of a chef means the boss the chief the person in charge of the brigade meaning the team of people who are cooking for you the team of cooks the dishwashers the fr- you are even in charge of the, the front of the house communicating with the back of the house so with that comes keeping the kitchen the restaurant properly maintained properly clean properly stocked rotating inventory making sure that that you don't over order under order welcome to the profitable table fed by wolco foods the nation's first podcast devoted to the business and lifestyle of the hospitality industry now here's your host wolco foods ceo steven toberoff Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Profitable Table, fed by Wilco Foods. I'm your host, Stephen Tobaroff, and today I have a guest who I've been uh, very much looking forward to interview for a variety of reasons. He is the chef and owner of Le Rivage, a New York institution at 340 West 46th Street. It's Chef Paul Denamier. <laughs> Bonjour, Stephen. Bonjour, Chef. So, uh, Paul, first off, thank you for uh, taking the time to, to do this. This is oh, um, my pleasure. very kind my of pleasure. you. So I have a lot of subjects I want to get into with you and get your thoughts on, but before we do that, can you tell us a little bit about you know just your background and how you've found your way through your journey to become the chef and owner of Le Rivage? Well, I didn't really have to find myself. It was kind of decided. You know, it's a family business. As you might be aware, I think Le Rivage is quite possibly uh, Wilco's oldest customer. I think we were even um, were before Wilco. There was uh, another company that kind of meshed together. So we've been around for a very long time. And, and my fate was kind of decided. You know, I'm the only son of, out of three brothers, the only child. So it was kind of uh, dictated that I was going to follow in their footsteps in some shape or form. But I'm very lucky that I have a, a talent for cooking and that I had an instinct for it. And it's what I wanted to do. So when you combine destiny and, and happiness together and at something you can do, I'm so much better off. That's great. I can relate to what you're saying as an, as an only child. And my father owned 50% of Wilco. And uh, so to get into something, which, you know, I had a different set of experiences, but when you find something through that sort of connection and then it really suits your personality and, and gives you a lot of joy, it's a very special thing. Just out of curiosity, I know from your bio on the website, you grew up on the Upper East Side, as did I. Whereabouts? So my oldest uncle and my father had Café du Soir, which was another institution, New York institution, 86th Street. The original one was between uh, 2nd and 3rd. His landlord was actually Mayor Lindsay. And then my uncle and father bought the property between 1st and 2nd on 86th Street, right around the corner from Schaller and Weber and right in the middle of uh, Germantown, Yorkville, as we call it. I know that area very well because my parents got divorced when I was five, but my father moved around a little bit. But for many years, he lived on 84th and 2nd, right above Dorian. So I know that oh, area wow. I know extremely exactly. well. Yes. So we were. So we grew up as neighbors, technically. We were in... You know, I was a Upper East Side kid. I went to the French Lycée due to my father wanting uh, a French background and wanted to maintain the language and uh, basically the background of also being a French restaurant. So it, it coincided with what he needed, basically. And that's very cool. And I do know from your bio and just researching before the interview that you studied in France, you went to the CIA, you did an externship with uh, Danielle Ballou and Jacques mm-hmm. Torres. So in addition to having the family pedigree, you really have... Uh, a very uh, impressive background. 
Well, I have my father to thank. My father had a, a very good reputation in the hospitality business. You know, he catered to, you know, a lot of uh, celebrities and politicians and real New Yorkers for a very long time. And he also attributed a lot of his success to, to a lot of the restaurant people coming to eat at his establishment at late hours. We were like the late hangouts. So there was a familiarity between all the hospitality workers and my and my father's business. It was almost like a, a get together. It was like maybe the original version of what pastis is today. We had that on the Upper East Side because that's when the Upper East Side was popping, as you know, the kids say popping, you know, the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s. That was that was the Upper East Side, you know, downtown and West Village and everything that really started in like the 80s. So true. That's really interesting. So for those of our listeners that are not from New York, Le Rivage is located on 340 West 46th Street, which is... It's Restaurant Row. It's the Theater District. It's Clinton. It's It's got a lot of names. It's predominantly, people love to call it Hell's Kitchen. But more specifically, we are part of Restaurant Row, which is part of the Theater District as well. So we're at that, all the circles intermingle and we're right at the center of it. So, I mean, the first question that I wanted to ask, because I'm so curious, is... Uh, I follow you on social media at Chef Paul and at Le Ravage NYC. And you had uh, an absolutely, and I'm sure you still do, but, you know, during the months when the weather was warm and everything, you had an absolutely gorgeous setup for outdoor dining. And again, for people not from New York City, Restaurant Row is really something that in addition to catering to New York City in general, is heavily utilized by uh, people who are going to the theater, be it matinees or, or what have you. And obviously there has not been Broadway. Yet you seem to build a massive following so my first question is, how many people do you think got introduced to Le Rivage this summer because of what you were doing with your outdoor setup and, and just all of your great presence on social media that were not necessarily introduced due to the theater district or you being on Restaurant Row? Was there any of that going on? I would say you're actually quite right. I think that most of my clientele right now is a new clientele. I would say 90% of it is a new clientele and it's a repeat new clientele since the beginning of this pandemic. I started slow, you know, we weren't allowed to be open, but what I had done in the neighborhood, I was the only one in the, in the restaurant cooking and everything. And what I did is I, I fed my, my neighbors, I fed the, the parking lot attendants, like the neighboring, I, I particularly fed um, the NYPD that were, you know, in the neighborhood and the FDNY and I had a little tactic of doing it. What I would do is I would play the outside speaker and I would play mostly uplifting music. And I told everybody, if you hear that music, I'm downstairs cooking, come grab a bite. So slowly but surely people were coming in. NYPD drove by, FDNY drove by, my neighbors came by, knocked on the door. As long as my music was playing, everybody knew that I was there making some food. So for me, first of all, it's it saved me because mentally I had nothing else to do. Like my job is to feed people. So I needed that. And it was a great launching board for eventually when we started opening for deliveries. So at that point, I was able to hire a couple more people, you know, in the kitchen and then a few more people in the dining room just to do the package delivery. So that now, so that kind of got the ball rolling. And then we were eventually we were like slowly were allowed to put little like cocktail tables outside for people waiting, you know, and then drinks and we could do the. So then it, it was a slow buildup, to, to be honest with you. And it's what it is today is it seems busy because it's a smaller version of our entity. The outside, we, we can only put a certain number of people and indoors even we can only put 25 percent. So it seems 
like we're doing a great job, but in reality, we're just doing 20% of what we're doing. I think, though, that's such a poignant and beautiful thing. And I do remember seeing those posts on social media with the music playing. That's such a that's such a New York moment that you created there, Paul, that when you hear the music playing and it's uplifting music, that means I'm downstairs cooking. I mean, that that's really beautiful. It worked out for a great time because I was the only one on the block because, well, first of all, I live above the restaurants. It was very practical for me. It was much more difficult for anybody else to do that, true to say. But that was my life. That, that whole pandemic, my life was upstairs, downstairs, upstairs, downstairs. And that was it 24-7. And, but I enjoyed it. I made the most of it, you know. And I was able to offer service and especially offer something that, that was my trade. I have so much respect for everyone in this industry because the level of resiliency and positivity and community and all of these wonderful attributes of being human are really on display and have been on display throughout this. I think the hospitality industry in, in many ways has not been given any support and not been even given any encouragement. It's almost been a lot of almost headwinds generated by those who are you would think would want to help. But within the industry itself, I've been inspired by by so many examples of that, as you say, resiliency and, and just putting one step in front of the other with a, with a positive mindset and, and having it build slowly. Well, I have to say that for what it's worth, it's brought out the nicer version of me out because true of all chefs, and I'm no exception, you know, we're, we're wild cards, divas, especially French chefs. We've, we have a bad reputation and, and they're all based on, on facts and truth. So our trade is our trade and it, at all costs, the show must go on. So there's a lot of yelling and screaming and then it's been subdued. And the fact that everything's been dumbed down to a percentage now, a small percentage, and it's uncontrollable. What we all have in common is that we all exist in the same bubble. It's beyond our control. So make the most of it. Do what you can. I mean, I know it's very frustrating. For some, it's very depressing. But we're... It's something that's uncontrollable. You cannot control it. So don't you don't feel guilty. Don't feel bad about it. Just positive thoughts and try to push forward. I really appreciate what you're saying. And again, I, I can relate as well because one of the many things that has come out of this for me is I've actually also learned a lot about myself and it sort of forced me to, to look at myself and look at certain attributes in a way that I probably never would have but for this. And it, it's been quite a positive change in me and both for my enjoyment of life and I think for the people you know, that are interacting with me. So I think your point is extremely, you know, well taken. It's one of those situations where you recognize where you don't have control and recognize where you do have control. It can really simplify life and make things much more impactful. It's one of the themes that I'm constantly reminding our team of here. You know, let's focus on those areas where we do have the ability to exert our influence and have some control and make the most of that rather than wasting time and energy on things that we we know that we can't. Now, I'm curious to know your thoughts on something, Paul. They've made the decision, they made it actually a while ago, that the outdoor dining thing is going to be a uh, year-round uh, if I'm, if am I correct on that? I believe they said that that would be some. Yep. It's going to be allowed to at least through next summer, for sure. That we know we were guaranteed that. But then again, we've heard guaranteed. Right. We've been guaranteed. <laughs> but but I, I think that that's really a positive thing because I know you studied and lived in, in France and I've been in Europe as well. And there's been outdoor dining in New York City, but I wouldn't call it a sort of a cafe type vibe. And many things that they did here, like shutting down streets and at least facilitating that behavior, I think was very positive. 
A, what are your thoughts on that? And B, now that you've sort of, you know, once the theater comes back, which will be in June, God willing, sooner, but whenever it does, obviously there's going to be the whole influx of people that are going back to restaurant row and that dynamic will begin to reassert itself in a big way. But I also believe, like you said, these new customers and these and these new uh, people that you've introduced to Le Ravage, how do you feel outdoor dining in general will play a role over the next, let's call it 12 to 14 months? Well, I believe the outdoor dining, it's what looks comfortable, what looks attractive, what feels safe, particularly now. You see a lot of people with original imaginations creating beautiful outdoor settings. Not everybody's fortunate to have the perfect space in front of themselves uh, because it could be because of traffic regulations, a fire hydrant, or just some implementation that excludes them from making the most of it. Restaurant row is very fortunate because what we were able to do, not only is all of Restaurant Row able to put out door dining, but now we also have the street closure. 46th Street between 8th and 9th Avenue is closed from approximately 2 or 3 p.m., depending on the day, till 11 o'clock at night. So it becomes a pedestrian street. So it's become a little bit of a congregation area. A lot of people come visit Restaurant Row now. And hence, while we're getting a lot of new customers and being rediscovered by a, a younger crowd, particularly, that would never have assumed coming to Restaurant Row. And usually we attract theater diners and we attract people from broad, from um, Times Square and people coming from the boroughs or out of town, tourism. We were very fortunate Restaurant Row has a little bit of everything. And if you do it well, and if you create your cycles throughout the day, you are able to maintain a steady flow of customers. But you have to adapt to the type of clientele it is. Now, to, to focus on the outdoor dining, I think we can do the same with that. We have to adapt. You have to adapt for the weather. You have to adapt for cleanliness. You have to adapt for garbage pickup. And there's a lot of things that people don't consider that comes with the outdoor seating. Safety is another issue. So everything has to accommodate all the factors. And I think that as time goes by, everyone will be able to perfect it. And eventually it'll become a way of things. And hopefully maybe after the summer, we'll be able to keep it. You know, as I was listening to you, Paul, and I just want to bring this out to our audience because um, as I had mentioned to in our introduction, and as people can see on your website, you're an extremely well-educated French chef and an expert in cuisine. Yet all of the points that you made, which are so important, have to do with being an entrepreneur, a business person. And so for those of you that are out there listening that aspire to open up a restaurant, please understand that this is really something so important to focus in on because along with being a chef de cuisine, you need to be a great entrepreneur. You need to view opportunities. And I loved focusing in on one word you kept repeating, Paul, which was adapt. I mean, adapting is so important. And the adaptations you were talking about, at least in the, in the, the last segment that you were sharing with us, had to do with everything. We didn't get to the cuisine. So I think that's just such an important point to mention. I mean, as a business person, this pandemic has thrown so many things at us. And it's, it's something that regardless of how well-credentialed you are as a chef or how amazing your cuisine is, you really need to be on point with all of these things. Would you agree? Definitely. And a chef de cuisine, which by definition for me, a chef, because everybody calls themselves a chef. But for me, a chef, the actual translation of a chef means the boss, the chief, the person in charge of the brigade, the, meaning the team of people who are cooking for you, the team of cooks, the dishwashers, the you're even in charge of the, the front of the house communicating with the back of the house. So with that comes keeping the kitchen, the restaurant 
properly maintained, properly clean, properly stocked, rotating inventory, making sure that that you don't overorder, underorder. There's so many things. You have to make sure that the maintenance is done to your equipment, to your tools, to your staffing. You have to give proper education. There is a minimum requirement for every stage of delivering food to the customer. From literally, you can even go back as far to the farm to all the way to putting it on a hot plate in front of the customer. That's amazing. You know, uh, on this similar line of, of discussion, on your website, you know, your restaurant is is so beautiful. But I know that you have takeout and delivery options and, and a multitude of them. I'm wondering how much of that aspect of your business has evolved and, and went up during the pandemic. And also just from a sort of demographic of New York City, because even though Restaurant Row, as we've said, a lot of it caters to theater goers, there's been so much evolution in that neighborhood and so much residential real estate that's gone up within enough of a circumference to Le Ravage that it would accommodate someone who wanted to take out in delivery. How has that aspect of your business been impacted and evolved throughout this uh, period of time? Well, I would say it depends on the cuisine because there's an association to saying takeout. Like, what do you usually take out? Well, first things that come to mind are Chinese food, diner, pasta, a lot of fast food chains are usually associated with takeout and delivery and things like that. It would never, even to me, like, oh, let's order out tonight. I would never think to order at a French restaurant. So that's been my difficulty personally as my establishment to adapt and reinforce the takeout. And I'm very fortunate that I've had a successful trademark, Staples. I've created the French Onion Soup Burger, which has been a multiple winner at the Food and Wine Festival for Burger Bash. And it's got a lot of recognition. So basically, I've been able to translate an American comfort food with French tones, and that's been my success. So when, on, during the good times, that was a popular takeout dish, and it brought publicity to my establishment. So maybe people came originally to me because they thought of the burger and they didn't want to eat in, but they wanted to order it. Then they discovered my menu. So it trickles in, it builds. You have to find dishes that are eye candy and that will attract a customer. You have to need to have a trademark, a signature dish that will bring the customer in, particularly in takeout. You could say that's true for all things. You need something to attract the customer. But I have to reinvent people's ideology of what takeout food is. And my personal version of it has been to create French comfort food, things that are simple, not overcomplicated. You know, the cordon bleu, we sell a lot of cordon bleu. And then, and then during the winter and bad weather and, and rain, we sell a lot of beef bourguignon, which is a hearty beef stew with red wine. So you can't complain about that. It's easy. You also have to consider how food travels. You know, it can't be messy by the time it gets there. It can't be disassembled. It needs to be, and you need to keep it simple. And for me, that's been my biggest difficulty with takeout. But as you say, you have to focus on it. It has to be a source of income. So gradually we've increased it. And yes, we've seen it grow and increase and actually better. We've, we've developed a better takeout delivery system. What I love about what you just said, and I think is so brilliant, and, and it really is perfect execution, because I've done earlier podcasts with restaurants that just specialize in delivery and takeout, and then I've talked about restaurants that can layer it on and help them. But what you said, which I really keyed into and I think is so brilliant, is with your hamburger, you not only found the food which everyone loves, which 
is something that is, is, is absolutely acceptable to the consumer to get and take out and delivery, but you directly tied it in to the French cuisine that is at the foundation of Le Ravage so that those customers that may get introduced to you because they read about your burger and the notoriety went with that, they now have another incentive, if you will, to come and check out the rest of the menu because you've never completely disassociated your creation from the core cuisine of Le Ravage which I think is so smart. Well, I'm very lucky with that hamburger. It was a stroke of genius. I had a couple of people who influenced me in creating it, and but I get all the credit. But their French cooking techniques incorporated into that burger that more than likely people wouldn't appreciate it if I were to point it out. But the French onion soup burger, first of all, I do it on, a, on an English muffin. I do onion confit, which is a, a style of pre- a preparation for just one particular item. I have a very close tie to Pat Lafrida, so I, they make a special blend for me. I like to call it the blue blend, the denim blue blend. And it's a, it's their particular cuts that are associated with my hamburger. I do the traditional onion soup when you have the baked cheese on top. I've been able to apply that principle to the burger. It took me a lot to figure it out because it has to all come out right at the same time. And then I incorporated also a cheese sauce, a Mornay, which is another French recipe. It's a bechamel and then you incorporate the cheese, which turns it into a Mornay. So these are all classic recipes that I've been able to combine, incorporate into one dish. And I'm very proud of the fact that it's as much as it is American icon, the burger, it's French by creation. Absolutely. You know, something I'm thinking about as you're speaking, Paul, is I've had conversations with other customers of ours and people I know in the industry. And what they are is essentially, they're similar to Le Ravage in the sense that they have very established and well-respected and successful brick-and-mortar brands. And for them, because obviously, as you know, and we can get into it, there are some challenges associated with the third-party delivery services. Most obvious, their costs, they really eat into margins. But for restaurants that are doing a brisk business with their brick and mortar and people who are coming in, they're able to leverage their existing resources and generate additional revenue because it's just an add-on. And as I was listening to you, many people that I've spoken with have created what are called sort of virtual menus or virtual concepts, which are available exclusively for takeout or really for delivery, uh, more so than anything else. And since you've done such a masterful job with this burger, is that something that you've ever thought about? Because I've, and I would, I would, and I would just make one other quick point. And I want to hear what you say because as a restaurant on Restaurant Row. And people would understand there's massive rushes before a matinee, before a dinner. So it might lend itself as a kitchen because you could even throw up that menu at times that are best for you. But I'm curious as to your thoughts. Well, like I said, I do in the past, without even thinking about it, I adapted the menu to the time slots that the day, the clientele that adapted to the type of situation. So for instance, matinees. Matinees are... Uh, Wednesdays and Saturdays, traditionally, but now we have matinees on Thursdays and Friday when the theater was open. So we had a type of clientele. So usually I did a price fix for that. And then the other times you have people who want to spend the day to have more leisurely. So right away, we had to adapt to a different style, a different motion, a different pace. And then at six o'clock, we had another pre-theater. So again, we go back into that crunch time of like a two-hour window where within two-hour windows, you need to sit the customer, they need to look at the menu, order their cocktails, and then I literally had to serve, you know, the capacity of the room, a hundred people in less than 45 minutes because what you have a two hour window, but between the time they order and everything you, and getting their dish to the table, you basically had 40 minutes. 
So when it comes to the takeout menu, basically I've picked out on my menu what delivers very well. Of course, I'm not going to do, it's not going to be decorated the same way that it is plated in a takeout container. So I steer clear of where the focus of the presentation is not the most important thing, the visual, because a lot of times you eat with your eyes first before you even put it in your mouth. It has to be emotionally pleasing to the eye. It connects to the brain. And then right away, your mouth is anticipating what it sees. So you can't do that with delivery. So it, it gets that they open it up. Sometimes it didn't travel well. Sometimes it just doesn't translate. So like I said, the beef bourguignon, the coco vam, a duck flambe, you're not going to do. You could serve the duck, but the visual aspect of it, the crispiness of it is not going to happen. A steak au poivre, I could I time it, but you're going to lose if it's not delivered properly. Your rare is going to turn into medium rare. Your medium rare is going to turn into medium. It'll either boil, salt, steam itself. There's a lot of technical difficulties. Sometimes food, French, particularly French food, and proteins are so expensive that it needs to be freshly done. I even get upset when if it sits at the stay shape um, in front of the grill before it goes out way too long because it changes. It, within minutes, the dish changes. So it has to be served fresh. So again, I had to coordinate the takeout menu to adapt and provide a dish that was visually pleasing and satisfying and then not overcomplicated, of course. I think that what you're doing there makes all the sense in the world. And I would say the most common mistake that people are making is they just immediately think that if there's a demand for it, they'll just allow the item to be uh, delivered or be available through delivery. And what you're focusing on, which is of vital importance, is if the meal is not going to carry well or it's not going to represent what you want it to, it doesn't make sense to do it because, again, the brand, if you will, of Le Ravage and, and that whole experience, why in any way have the takeout experience not be reflective of the overall experience? So I think you're 100% correct there. And I think it's a mistake that a lot of people make and they overlook it. So I hope that they're sort of listening to what you're saying and focusing on that. How have you found the vibe change? Because, again, this has been going on for several months. What do you see in terms of, are there people, and again, forget about weather, but just in general, do you find that there are more people who might happen upon the outdoor dining at Restaurant Row, or do you still feel it's a situation where it's either going to be neighborhood people or people who are making a deliberate decision to come to that destination for that experience? I've made a conscious effort to advertise through social media and other routes. And I believe that a lot of people on my block are doing the same. And we've created a buzz. I've personally created different types of buzz. I have one for the food. I have one specifically made for, I have a lot of French onion soup burger fans, a lot. I have a lot of particular dishes that I have big fans and people will come from far and away to come and get them. So that being said, that's one thing. But then I also created like the music. I love the jazz sessions that we have at Le Rivage. That's created another attraction. And then the outdoor dining, if you're in itself, is an attraction to certain people. It does invite possibly a younger crowd. It obviously does invite more of, um, I would say, cocktail environment. <laughs> Let's put it that way. You know, we 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 definitely do sell more uh, alcohol than before. Well, particularly before, people did not overdrink because they didn't want to fall asleep at the theater. So, But now people don't have that word because entertainment is at the restaurant. It's a, a traditional eating out environment. It's hard to put music and entertainment outside because everybody's competing with themselves. There are some neighbors that are overblowing, overextended their the volume. So it does create sometimes a handicap. But all in all, most of the, the block has created a festive 
atmosphere. And the word of mouth is such a, a strength. And then consistency. Yeah, You need consistency. Food, for me, consistency is the secret to a successful business. Quality is one, consistency is another. And if you can do that with everything, service, the atmosphere, the food, then you have a winning combination, a winning recipe. You're so right. My father used to say to me that consistency was the number one uh, attribute that people want to know that the experience that they're getting is going to be the experience they had before, because obviously you want repeat customers and and referrals. You know, you alluded to something that I'd like to get your thoughts on as well. Uh, When you had mentioned the cocktails. Now, I'm not sure what the status is now. You'll have to tell me. But I know that there was a period in time when restaurants were allowed to serve alcoholic beverages and cocktails to go. Many people that I interviewed and many people that I spoke with found that to be a very beneficial uh, add-on, if you will, or a beneficial uh, addition to their business. Is that still allowed? And how did you find that in terms of, of your business? I think that might be a really cool thing, particularly in proximity to the Broadway district. But uh, I'm curious to know what you think. Well, as is, it's it's been discontinued. So restaurants are not allowed to do that anymore. So it really is. That's yeah. that's unfair. That's not it, right. It is. In my opinion. The, I mean, considering the circumstances, they might reintroduce it for the summer months. There was a little bit of chaos that was created by the overdrinking and everybody milling around and drinking in the streets. And because there's such an abundance of restaurants in my area that are back to back and side by side and across from each other, that it, it creates a different atmosphere. So when there's just alcohol widespread everywhere, it's hard to contain it because you are responsible for your customer's inebriation legally. So that could be very, very worrisome. It could be great for business that as much as good as it'll do you for the till, all you need is one person to get hurt and sue you and that's it. All the progress you've made is lost very quickly. So there's that issue. So I was always weary of that. It's great when you see the money coming in when you're desperate and there's, there's just nothing else. But again, a restaurant is so susceptible to every single person that comes into your establishment and you're responsible for them even after the fact. So you have to be conscious of that. So for me, my OCD and my worrisome attitude, it scared me a little bit. Now, one of the things that I noticed when I was looking at your menu is you have obviously all of the great classic French dishes. And I wonder, how do you balance between, because and, and we discussed before with your with your education, your family's background and all of that, when you approach these dishes, Coco Van, Chicken Cordon Bleu, which, whichever dishes it may be, do you approach it with the idea that you're trying to produce something that really shows fealty and execution to the way that you feel it was shown to you in the way that it should be? Or do you feel that you want to bring your own little flair to it How do you approach that from the perspective of a chef? Well, my scenario is a little bit different because I came into a family business that had its own recipes. And the recipes are older than my father's generation and his brother's generation. They go back to my grandmother and an older sister that used to be in the profession. So some of these recipes are over 100 years old. So how do I bring my uniqueness to it? Well, how I was able to do it, you can maintain something, consistency, that's very good. And you can also upgrade it. By upgrading, I don't mean changing the recipe, but you can find 
much better ingredients. You can find a better wine to put into the sauce. You can find a better cut of meat to put into that dish. You can find a fresher fish. You can find a supplement that will not change the original idea of the recipe or even the customer's memory of it from 10, 20, 30, 40, 50. Because don't forget, I'm dealing with customers that have been coming that long. So I cannot screw up their memory of that dish. I can only make it better. And by doing that, better ingredients, fresher ingredients, and just reinventing a dish without the customer even knowing it. That's been my secret, to be honest with you. Now, on a personal side, for my own glory, I have created new dishes. The French onion soup burger is one of those, but it kind of melds a little bit of everything. Classic French, American comfort food. It kind of bridges uh, the age gap. It also creates a dish that for someone that doesn't know French food and wants to maybe be introduced to it, you know, I'll have a burger. This is French food. And they'll be like, no, this is a burger. Well, no, you're having classic recipes without you knowing it. It was very, very, very difficult for me to convince my father <laughs> that I was going to put a hamburger on the menu. <laughs> he was. Well, that was a brilliant. I mean, it's so brilliant, though, the way that you did that by incorporating the classic French attributes. So, Paul, this has been an absolutely fascinating interview. And I, I'd like to ask you one more question for our listeners out there that are aspiring to get into the hospitality business, be it opening a restaurant or what have you. What would you say is choose one of the two or, or even both, whatever you prefer. But what would you say is the single most lasting or valuable or important lesson you've learned? Or conversely, what would you say is the single most important mistake to avoid for someone who's beginning the journey of actually, you know, taking the plunge and, and opening up their own business? Well, there are different levels there. Becoming a chef is one level. Having your own business is another thing. If I knew then what I knew now, I would not want to confuse successful business with being a successful chef in my case. Because sometimes I've had to find myself sacrificing some integrities, either as a chef or as a business owner, you know? So you have to be conscious of that. If your pleasure is cooking, I would recommend focusing on that, being a chef, rather than opening up a restaurant and thinking you're going to be a chef in that restaurant. First, become a chef and then decide if you want to be an entrepreneur. I've been very lucky that I started very, very young and I had amazing help. I've become friends with a lot of great chefs and they've helped me along the years. So I've been very, very lucky. But then when it came to running a business and creating a persona, you don't want to sacrifice quality for the sake of the almighty dollar. And that's the trap. That's really the trap what's good for the soul. Some people like prefer a register to be ringing and some prefer the compliments at the end of the night from the customers. I could tell you, I personally, I'm on top of the world when I get rave reviews every day, but all it takes is one negative review. One person out of maybe a couple of hundred I'll serve that night and that'll ruin my night too. So it's a precarious edge to that sword to travel. First off, I really appreciate your honesty. You're an extremely self-aware person, and I, I have a feeling that that's been a big asset for you. And the other thing that I really hear a lot of is there's a lot of humility. You know, you're, you're always thanking other people and you're crediting things. And I think that's another attribute that is a big part of why you're so successful. And this was an, this was really an exceptional conversation for me. I learned a lot. And for those of you, as I say, that are listening and who have 
whether it's to be a chef, whether it's to open up a business entrepreneur, you're not going to get better information than, than what Paul shared with us today. So I, I would just end by saying, Paul, thank you for everything. First of all, it's an honor to do business with you, but I really, really enjoyed this conversation and, and getting to know you a little bit better. And I really thank appreciate you, Stephen. you taking the time. Merci beaucoup. Thank you, Paul. Have a wonderful day. All the best to you. I really, really enjoyed that interview because Paul not only went into so many different executable strategies and focus points that I think translate into really anyone seeking to open up a restaurant or a bar, but he really went deep into what he's done to continue to adapt and evolve and in many ways capitalize on the opportunities that were presented. And I I just have such respect for him as an entrepreneur. And as I said in the interview, you know, Chef Paul is a man who has an enormously accomplished pedigree and background in the cuisine aspect of a business. But from an entrepreneur standpoint, you're not going to get better uh, insights than what we got. So I thank him for that. And I also thank each and every one of you for taking the time to listen to this podcast. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe. I would love it if you would do that. If you know someone who's interested in this type of subject matter, entrepreneurship, restaurants, New York City, uh, please recommend the podcast. And most importantly, please keep the emails coming. Uh, You can email me at steven at wolcofoods.com or you can DM me on Instagram at wolcofoods. I always enjoy reading the uh, emails that you send. It it oftentimes is very thought-provoking, very gratifying. And I really appreciate each and every one of you uh, for listening and have an awesome, awesome day. Thank you for listening to The Profitable Table, fed by Woolco Foods. Please be sure to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. And to learn more about Woolco Foods or Stephen Toberoff, please visit us at woolcofoods.net.